We start today our uh, series uh, at Christmas, the Advent season, and uh, we're going to be this year, the theme is the party animals. And we'll be uh, welcoming some of the animals that were there at the manger this year, and uh, we're talking about how, uh, really how Christ uh, meets us right where we are at. And uh, this morning, of course, Dior uh, talks about the discouraged donkey and how Christ uh, meets the discouraged donkey with hope, uh, which is a great thing. Before we start that, though, this is the beginning of our Advent uh, series uh, and, and the Christmas season. Just to uh, there's a lot of symbol, symbolism in this time of year, and I want to make sure that uh, we cover some of this so that way it's not lost. Otherwise, symbolism just becomes stuff that's out there. We wonder what it is. Uh, with Advent, it's uh, basically a month. It's the four weeks before Christmas that we begin to prepare our hearts to receive and to celebrate the coming of Christ. And so to do that, there are some things that we add into that. And so as Christians, they started with the Advent wreath. Um, and so you'll notice every week we light another candle. And this is why we do that. First, there's the wreath that's on the bottom. It's an evergreen wreath. And it was modeled or fashioned after originally the Roman uh, wreaths or the laurels that they would have if you had an, on the athletic competitions. If uh, you had a victor, somebody won, they would give them that crown, right? And so uh, it was a, a, a wreath. And it reminds us, the, the wreath uh, reminds us that Christ came to overcome. He overcome overcame sin and death and brokenness and everything for us. He's uh, the, the mighty overcomer. But unlike the Roman wreaths that were open, the laurels, the Christian wreath is a closed one. And the reason that it's closed and it's in a circle is it reminds us that Jesus came, didn't just overcome uh, death, but he brought us eternal life, which is why the wreath is the evergreen. It's made out of the evergreen leaves, and that's why it's in a circle, that it does not end. So when you see wreaths, that's why sometimes uh, people will put berries on wreaths, not just because they look nice, but the red berries remind us that he overcame because he shed his blood. It was the sacrifice. And so when you see the wreath with the berries, it reminds us of that. And the white berries remind us that he came uh, because of his sacrifice. He brought us purity, righteousness back to God. And so that is what the white reminds us of. So the Advent wreath sits at the base of where we have five candles. And the five candles each have specific meaning. And each week we light one candle, which means we begin to focus on a particular aspect of the Advent, preparing our hearts as Christians, as a church. Worldwide, we begin to do this together. And so the candles have uh, four different colors. The first is purple that you'll see there. Purple is the color of preparation. So every week that we light a purple candle, it's a week to be introspective, to prepare our hearts to receive what Christ has done for us. Then we will find that the last candle we rely on Christmas Eve is white, and that is the celebration of Christ. We call it the Christ candle, the one who was pure, who brought the light into the dark world, right? the light of the world that God has come. And so then the third week we light with the, the rose-colored candle, and the reason it's rose-colored is it's the mix between the purple and the white, and that's the candle of joy. And it's as we remember, as we prepare our hearts, that Christ came and brought us this perfection, this hope, all of those things. And so uh, that's what the colors mean on the Advent wreath. And then uh, in there, we find that each week there's a different candle. The first one is the candle of hope. As we prepare our hearts, we remind ourselves of the hope that God has brought us. And then, of course, you see the other three major colors for Christmas, the red, the green, and the white. And so, obviously, the green, the eternal life that God brought, the red, the sacrifice, and the white, the purity that he brought to us. And so this is what we're doing today. We're focusing on hope as we uh, begin this Advent series. Uh, and so when I say Advent, the word Advent just means the arrival, that we are celebrating the arrival of somebody very 
spectacular. Somebody who was actually uh, prophesied about uh, many, many times in the Old Testament. And uh, one of those was through a prophet named Isaiah. 700 years before uh, Jesus was born, God gave, uh, gave us this amazing prophecy through him. And you saw that in the skit this morning as well. The prophet Isaiah said, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the arrival that we celebrate, the, the, the fulfillment of this amazing process, of the prophecy. And so we're going to talk through it just a little bit, but first, this is also going to be our memory verse for this series, as it is every year, because it's a very perfect one, is remind ourselves of who we are celebrating. So all I'll do is we'll just say it together a few times, and then we'll get on with the message. So here we go. Three, two, one. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called wonderful. Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. Oh, very good. You sound so good. Let's do it again. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. One more time, then we'll test ourselves. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. Ah, you sound so good. Let's test ourselves. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. Very good. Now, this is important for us. We can't really celebrate the Christmas season if we don't celebrate Christ in this season, right? That's really what Christmas is about, Christ's Mass. We're coming together to celebrate the arrival of Christ. And this is who God came as, a child that was born, a real baby, a son, right? A real human being, but is also that he was a wonderful counselor, a mighty God. We'll talk about that. This is God became a person. Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. This is what gives us all of the hope and the joy and the peace and the love that we can celebrate the light of Christ. And so what I encourage you to this Christmas season, starting today, if you would begin to just memorize this and think about it. Because Christ didn't just come in the past. Jesus did show up as a real baby, right? But he's still doing work today. That's part of the Christmas season as we celebrate Christ's work even now that Jesus is still saving us, right? He's still, uh, he's still at work doing good things. The gospel is still being preached. People are still being saved, even now. And that Christ's work continues, not just out there, but also in here and in here. We celebrate that. And we also then celebrate too, and we'll talk about today as hope, is that the work of Christ is not done. Just as he came as a child, he's going to return as king of kings. He's going to come back and finish the work of salvation. Because I don't know if you've noticed this, but the world, as good as it is, is not heaven yet. And so he's coming back. And the work of Christ is he's actually doing something, a redemptive work, that someday we will enjoy the fulfillment of that. 
So I encourage you, take this time, this Christmas season, and memorize that passage, Isaiah 9, 6. Think about what it means, even today, for you. Right? As what is God doing and what is Christ doing? So that way you prepare yourself. And according to this week, as you memorize it, think about the hope of Christ that we have because Jesus actually came, fulfilled this prophecy. So on your, your uh, connection card, there is a Bible memory verse card that we have on there. It's perforated. I invite you to tear that off and take it with you. Put it in your pocket or your wallet, tape it in the back of your phone, and remind yourself of this. Now, as we do that, we start this series. Um, each week, we're going to pick a different animal and talk about, uh, really, as we're kind of those animals, <laughs> how God meets us in that. And so we have the discouraged donkey. And I don't know, maybe some of you are discouraged donkeys. You ever seen um, uh, Eeyore, the, Dior's cousin? You ever, watch, you ever watch that, Winnie the Pooh? Like, that donkey is just like, you're like, cheer up, dude. You ever met somebody like that? Like, nothing is ever good. They're always just perpetually discouraged. But some of us aren't forever Dior's. Some of us go through periods of life where we meet discouragement, right? And when we find discouragement, it's, a very, it's almost suffocating when you are really, truly discouraged. Have you ever felt that way? A lot of people do. And that uh, discouragement can cause us to, to lose courage, well, that's what discouragement, to lose the courage to be able to live life in a victorious way with hope or with joy. Discouragement could cause us to feel defeated even before we've even gone to battle. Discouragement can actually keep us from even trying to do the good things or to believe that there are even good things out there. In preparation for this, uh, for this series, I did some research about discouragement and discovered that there's a lot of writings about it, but psychologists have discovered, uh, discussed three, and I loved how it, was, how it was written in this one text that I went through about where are the causes of discouragement, the kind of the roots of what would cause a person to become discouraged. And I thought they really summarized everything so well. And uh, there were three things. Basically, they say there's some roots of discouragement that you can look to if you find someone who's discouraged. And the first thing that causes discouragement or the root of discouragement is failure. Uh, when somebody fails, they can feel discouraged. Like, I tried so hard, I did all these things, and it just didn't work. Uh, have you ever failed? Yeah, <laughs> right? It's hard to go through life without failing at something. But sometimes the failures is not just something you feel like, oh, I'm going to get over it, I'm going to learn from that, I'll get better. Sometimes if we hit failure after failure after failure, we begin to believe that we are a failure, that, that we can't actually overcome that. Or maybe we were doing really good and then we failed at a very key moment, right? And then we own that, right? And become very discouraged. I had my own uh, thing when I was in high school, I was a running back and we had a very good football team. You could believe in the Bobcats up here, we were really good. We were in the playoffs pretty much every year. And I was a running back. And uh, we had an option offense, and, I was, and we were in playoffs. And we were playing this team, and I had this opportunity to get this pitch. And if uh, and I would get it, I, I could outrun everyone on their defense because back then I was fast, not fat. And it was fantastic. <laughs> and so it was a freezy, freezy cold day. And, uh, and I was there, and I, I was waiting. And the quarterback snapped the ball, and I take off from my sweep. And he pitches the ball, and he pitches it just a little behind me, right? And normally, I could have gone back and tried to get it. My hands were cold or whatever, but I just missed it. Now, if I would have gotten that ball, I could just look out in front of me. There was nothing but green grass, right? That was, that was going to bring us to the state championship. It was a great game. Instead, the ball went, flew behind me. Their defensive end, who was running up, got on the ball, and we lost the playoff game. And I owned that for years in my dreams, right? I just had this sense of like, 
I'm going to blow it when at the key moment, right? You can have that sense of discouragement. It took a lot of grace. It seems like something silly, like just a game. But I don't know if you've ever been in a place like that where you felt like this is a key moment, everyone's counting on me, and I failed. That can lead to discouragement in a real significant way. It can make you want to just quit. Or maybe it's those things where, where you did something, you just blew it. Like you, maybe, you know, you were around somebody, at a, uh, could even be at like Thanksgiving, you said something that you really shouldn't have said. You lost your temper, or you said something out of, not out of kindness or something like that, and you wrecked a relationship, right? And that can lead to discouragement. It can make you feel like, oh, I'm just such an awful person. Discouragement is a horrible thing. Failure leads to discouragement when we begin to own it. And I say a lot of us have a, not just one failure in our life, but if we look back, honestly, most of us have lots of failures. In fact, I would say pretty much every human does <laughs> because none of us perfect. Kind of the point. But I say that uh, in our culture and in amongst, even amongst the church, we find that discouragement is a real thing. Failure can lead to that. And we'll see today how the hope of Christ, how the advent, the coming of Christ, addresses that. The second major cause of, of discouragement is insecurity. When someone feels that they are not safe, right? That it doesn't matter that what they do, uh, that this world is just broken, uh, that I, I can do everything right and still the wrong things will happen, that can lead to discouragement. So uh, it's like uh, uh, we read that story that Jesus tells, a parable there was this guy who was a, a, a really good businessman farmer, and he spends his life and he builds this farming business, and it gets really, really good. He's got a lot of profits and all of this, and he's going to be set, right? And so he builds these massive barns, and he fills them with all the extra grain and all of this, and he looks back, and he's like, after this, I don't have to work anymore. I'm good, right? And then the punchline is, Jesus says, but then God says to him, hey, you're foolish. You live for the wrong things, right? Tomorrow, your time's up. It's all you get. And then somebody else is going to get all your stuff that you work for, and they're just going to waste it. <laughs> you're like, oh, that's how discouraging is that? I hate that parable, <laughs> right? If, if you listen to it the wrong way, right? I mean, the thing is that this world is not fair. It's just not fair. Sometimes you could do all the right things, and all the wrong things happen. Right? I had a, uh, Amy and I had a friend, family friend that we knew that lived, that was a very, very healthy person, did all the right things uh, health-wise, right? They did all the exercise, they ate all the right foods, they, you know, never drank, they smoked, all the kind of good, they took care of their body and all this, and then boom, they get hit with horrible sickness. Their health is taken from them. Is that fair? And then what makes it worse is then we know people who would just destroy their body, do all kinds of horrible things, and they're fine, cholesterol's good, you know, blood pressure is fine. You're like, it's not fair. That can lead to discouragement. Say, why well, even try? I think a lot of times when people get to that point, they see the injustice of this world, and they're like, oh, it's just hard. And there's no security in it. And so it leads to discouragement. The third cause of discouragement is this one. It's called pessimism. Pessimism is not seeing any hope in the future. Like, just to believe that anything good that happens, it just means that something bad's going to happen next. Right? Like, if I get something good, it's only to set me up to, to, to have a, a discouragement. Like, the future is not bright, the, the pessimists say. If I put a new light bulb in, it's only because it's going to burn out later. Right? That I just don't have any confidence in, in, in what the future holds. And pessimism sometimes is the result of 
failures and insecurities. We've suffered so many of those that we just stop believing that there's something good happening to look forward to, that the future is just going to be broken. You know, if we look at all three of those failures, insecurities, and pessimisms, each one of those is a lack of confidence. That's the core. If we look at failure, it's, it's lack of confidence in the self, right? If I look and I'm discouraged because of my past failures, it shows that I don't have any confidence in me. I know I'm going to blow it. I can't trust me. And so why would I count on me? If we look at insecurity, it's that we, don't lack, we have lack of confidence in culture or this world, right? I can do all the right things, but it's not going to be fair. It's not going to be right. I'm not going to get my fair shake. I can't trust this world to do what's right or to, be, uh, to have anything good for me. So why just get discouraged? It's lack of confidence in others. And the last one, pessimism. If we look at that, it's not just lack of confidence in the future. It's lack of confidence ultimately in God. That he can't fix this mess. It's just going to be bad. Every one of those, at the core of discouragement, we find a lack of confidence. And that is why hope is the solution. This morning, when it goes through uh, these scriptures, we're going to show you, and we talk about the Advent. I want to see how Christ, and the hope of the Advent, the coming of Jesus, answers each one of these core roots of discouragement so we can have hope that prepares us to celebrate Christ. And the first uh, thing that we're going to talk about is, oh, here's hope, that, uh, that we're going to talk about that hope does to answer discouragement is that hope right here, it overcomes failure. It's the first thing that hope does. That hope allows us, the hope of the advent allows us to not fear failure, not to be bogged down, not be buried by our failure. So let's start with this. Why do we celebrate advent? It's an odd thing if you think about it, right? Um, Humans have failed, right? We have a long history of failure, If you go all the way back to the garden, to the very first couple, humanity failed, right? God said, I got everything set up. You can enjoy paradise and it'll be perfect. The only thing I'm going to ask you to do is to continue to just agree with me. Believe what I say is good is good and believe what I say is bad is bad. If you do that, everything's good. But instead, our our proto-ancestors, what do they do? They found the one tree that God says, I don't want you to eat from this, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil which basically with this poison in it that allowed us to create our own standard of right and wrong. And so instead of saying to God, we're going to trust you and know that what you say is good is good, we want to say what, what we say is good. We want to be able to do that. And once we ate from that fruit, humanity got what we call this sin nature, a broken moral compass, however you want to call it, right? And so what we do is we create these broken standards of what is right. Think about every fight that you pretty much have. Isn't it that you think you're right and the other person thinks they're right? I mean, occasionally we get into a fight, we know we're wrong and we just don't want to admit it, right? That happens sometimes. But generally, fights happen between people because you think you're right and you think they're wrong and they think the opposite. And we become right fighters. Aren't right fighting families the least peaceful families ever? Maybe some of you are with some of them this past week. It's miserable. It's warfare. Like, in the name of being right, humans kill each other. It's not just battles in between people and in marriages between parents and children and all that kinds of stuff. It's that when we think we have the higher moral ground, we think we're right, we somehow believe that we can do awful things to those who are wrong. In a culture, we have nation goes to war against other nations. 
right? We, we, we slaughter each other literally thinking that what we're doing is good. If we look at that humanity failed in the garden, it was a pretty profound failure. We went to war against our creator, almighty God, which isn't a good call. But we did. We blew it. But instead of annihilating us, God set us out of the garden. He said, you can't have this perfection. You'll mess it up. But he didn't send us away. He said, all right, this world is now under your control. And we've proceeded to continue to break it. In fact, we read in Scripture, in Genesis, as, as more and more people were around, what happened? Society continued to grow and became more and more and more wicked, more and more and more violent, to the point that there was just one family left in the entire world that was decent and actually agreed with God said was good and what he said was evil was evil, like actually agreed with God. And even they weren't perfect. And so we find the second great failure of humanity. Have you ever thought that the world would be better if we could just eliminate all the bad people? I mean, we're getting into an election year, right? It was 12 months, so it's going to be a lot of fun the next 12 months. Everybody agrees? <laughs> These next 12 months, you're going to have a lot of attack ads to say everybody who does not like you is evil. It's bad. They're going to have that voice that comes over, this person hates children, right? That guy. Going to be on there and talk about how your side is the righteous moral one and they're so bad. And part of that, then you start thinking about how much easier an election would be if everyone just vote what you think is right. If everyone just agreed with me, we would be fine. Do you ever have that thought? You're not the only ones throughout history. Humans have thought we can just purify the world by taking out all the bad people. We call that genocide. But of course, most of us would say we would just wish them away or something. Like, like that's better. But you know what? God actually gave humanity an opportunity to see how that would work. He took that one last couple, Noah and his family. And he says, all right. We'll give you a fresh slate. We'll give humanity a fresh slate. Society that has gone wrong, we're going to take out all the bad things of society. We're going to start fresh with a righteous family who's clearly very good because in the midst of all the bad things around them, they still stayed morally good. And so you start with the very best opportunity, this family that, that starts right. And what happens? I mean, you don't even get two chapters in and the world's already messed up again. The solution isn't genocide. The solution isn't just annihilating all the people who think wrong according to your standard. It doesn't, it doesn't work. Why? Because the problem isn't out there with culture. The problem isn't here. See, society failed again. Humanity failed. Given our own selves, we will always go to war. We will always do what is right thinking that we, uh, we always do what is wrong thinking that we're right. In fact, even then we find a couple chapters later that we find then like Sodom and Gomorrah that it becomes so awful that there wasn't anybody righteous left. In five cities, there weren't five people that were righteous. And so we, we find that, that uh, in that, that where God brought that, that very fierce and violent judgment, it says that everybody in those cities was doing right in their own eyes. They thought they were moral. And in thinking that they were moral, they did horrible, horrible things. I say we find that, that we failed in the garden, we failed after the flood. And then we also, I think this is the most profound one that I find, is that, that, that God then, he calls this nation, he's like, you can't save yourselves. It's very clear. Humanity is not the solution to humanity. We're never going to be good enough. So he says, I'm going to do what you can't do. I'm going to send a savior to you. And then to do that, to make sure you're saved, I'm going to create a nation. 
I'm going to set them apart, make them different, and I'm going to put, give them the prophets. I'm going to show them who I truly am so that the world can understand who I am, and I'm going to bring a Savior through them. You're going to know him as the Messiah. And, and in these prophecies, like Isaiah 9, 6, he tells us what the Messiah is going to do and all of this, and, and so we can look forward to that. But he also, he tells them in this laws for these people, he says, but I'm also going to give you an extra bonus. You keep killing each other, wondering what is right and what is not right, right? And you have your wrong moral standards. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a clue in on actually what is right, what is true. You get the secrets from Eden. Think how amazing that is. Humanity went for thousands of years having to kind of come up with their own ethics, and it didn't work. And God tells us, you know what? You want to know what Adam and Eve just knew intrinsically at their creation? He says, I'll reveal it to you. A better way of living, I'll show you. I can, you're, you can't trust your moral compass, but I'll give you one so that way you can live a better way. And he gave the people of Israel, what was called the law, a different way of life, a different way of seeing things that was actually morally good, could actually be morally good, and things worked better for them. It was amazing. But even in that, did people take that law and abuse it? Didn't they take the laws that were supposed to lead to righteousness and lead us back to God? Didn't they use some of those things to, to bludgeon each other and use religion as a weapon? I mean, they even used it against Jesus, right? They would say, Jesus, stop doing nice things on the Sabbath. This is a very, I mean, people, we, we take even religion, even the best things, and we can mess it up. But we don't have to just look at the Jews. I mean, I look at ourselves, in Christian history, we've done some pretty nasty things in the name of Christianity. I would say this. If you look back in history and you look back at, at all, you could say, we don't have a very good winning season. We're like oh and a trillion. We don't have confidence in ourselves. Nor should we. Right? I think that's a, that's a big thing. So then, based upon that list of failures, and knowing that our failures are there, why would we be excited that God the Creator would show up? It's like, if you were kids, and you take out like the, the chocolate uh, sauce, and you spread it all over the new white carpet in your family's home, you're not going to be excited when your parents show up, are you? Because you done messed up, and you know it. Uh, even dogs know this, right? You ever had a dog that got into the garbage? You come home and they're like, oh, shame. Why would we, who've gotten to the garbage, who have messed up the perfect white carpet, why would we be excited that God would, for to us a child is born and his name is going to be Almighty God? Why is this not a season of terror? Well, it's because of this, that it's not just Almighty God. For unto us a child was born and a son was given, that God became one of us. He's going to do something for us. First, he's going to take the government. It could be on his shoulders. Now, he hasn't done that perfectly yet because that's when he comes as king of kings. But don't you look forward to a day there's no election cycle? That the righteous king is actually righteous? I mean, that's pretty cool. That's something to look forward to. But in the meantime, the government's on his shoulders, but, but his name, this is how we're going to know him by. Wonderful counselor. Think about wonderful counselor. I mean, to be... A wonderful counsel. In fact, I'm going to just show you. Oh, overcomes our failure. That uh, to be a, uh, a wonderful counselor is uh, one that uh, is somebody who tells you what to do. People come to me for counsel. Every week I get to have this uh, great privilege of having folks that come in and they say, I need guidance. And they don't want my wisdom. They want God's wisdom. That's why they come to me because 
they want to work it through. And somebody who's studied the word, they could say, let's process this through God's word together so I can see what I want to do. Like if you go to a counselor, it's because you typically have something that's messed up, something that's not working right. You don't take your car to the mechanic when everything's perfect, right? You usually go when something's like squeaking or not doing what is right. And you say, how do I get this fixed? Now you have good counselors and bad counselors, right? Some counselors go and they tell you how to do things and your life gets way more messed up. And you say, that's a lousy counselor. But Jesus isn't a bad counselor, right? He's a good counselor. That you go and you can, he comes to you and out of grace. He says to us uh, that live in this, this lifestyle of failure. And he comes to us and he helps us make sense of our lives so we can live a better life, right? When we interact with Jesus, when this child came, when God came to us, he didn't just come to save us from sins, but save us from ourselves. And he teaches us a better way of living to the point that the people who follow him, he will be known by this. He's not just a good counselor. He is a wonderful counselor. Think about that. That's why we celebrate that God came not to just condemn us, but to save us and to teach us. He gives us amazing guidance. But he's not just a wonderful counselor. I think about this. He's a wonderful counselor, but he's a mighty God, which could terrify us if if we were going to be, we said we went to war with him and he's mighty and he's powerful. He's going to strike us down. But we see that his heart wasn't to just destroy us, but he does have the power to enact his reign. He's a true king. He can stop nature in its tracks. He can cure any sickness that he wants to. Nature is completely under his control. The spiritual realms, entire armies of demons would surrender to him without even fighting. He's powerful over the supernatural. He's a powerful, mighty God. So powerful he's able to overcome death itself. And even sin. That's a reason to celebrate. That the one who came was capable. And I say that he's not just a mighty God. But here's the other part of it. See, with the God, we are so much less than God. You're right? I mean, you think about how amazing and powerful and high and, and all that he is. And you think about humanity. And sometimes we sing this song. that says, he knows the hearts of men and still he lets them live. Have you ever like, oh, amen to that? Why is it that God wouldn't just call us like the everlasting master? But he didn't. Jesus didn't come so we could be the eternal slaves, which was far above what we deserved because we were rebels against his kingdom. But he would be known as everlasting father. He says, you know what? You're not slaves, but I'm going to adopt you into my own family. You're going, to be, I'm, you're going to be identified with me. All of my wealth is now yours. All of my authority I'm going to share with you. I'm not going to be ashamed to be associated with you. You are my children now. Everlasting Father. And that's not going to end. He doesn't disown you. You don't grow out of his house. And think of what a good father. This is how we can interact with God. Not as terrifying master, but as a heavenly father who loves us, who meets our needs, who protects us, who cares for us intimately. What father doesn't know the name of his kids? Doesn't care for them. Our Heavenly Father is so greater than any human father. And He loves us. And that's why we celebrate. As He came to us, His own. Prince of Peace. We need that. That He would be known not as a God that would lead us into terrible war and strife and conflict, but He's going to bring about an amazing peace, a true peace. Not one that's only there because He's got power, but one because He transforms even enemies into His children. 
This is why we celebrate the coming, the arrival of this God. That's why the Advent gives us hope. See, hope overcomes our failures because God is bigger than our failures. He knows that we were broken. He saw our sin, and that's precisely why he came. In fact, in Romans 5, I love how it says this. It says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You could say, while we were still cosmic failures, God, Christ died for us. He came to us and said, I'm going to make you worthy. Our confidence cannot be in us. Rationally, it cannot be in us. And that's why we have our confidence in Christ. He overcomes our failures and says, you know what? I came to this earth so that I could grow. I became flesh so that I could die. I became mortal so I could pay the price for your sins. So they could be paid for. And now you don't have to have shame or sin any longer. Those things are paid for. And your failures are now removed so far from you that God doesn't even remember them. And that's pretty far because God's got a long, long memory. But he doesn't remember your sins. They are paid for. Think how amazing is that? Separated from you as far as east is from west, which is an infinite amount. Never to find you. God has so disassociated us with our failures. Once we came to him, that that they're no longer ours at all. In fact, he says you're a new person entirely, starting from your soul out. Think how amazing is that? And he didn't do it because we deserved it. He did it because we needed it. And so the nativity invites us to look past ourselves. This season, if you are struggling with, with discouragement because you felt like you blew it, join humanity and recognizing that we all blow it. That's why we needed Jesus. Look past yourself and look to Christ. The second reason why the nativity, the arrival, helps us overcome our, our discouragement is this, is that hope overcomes insecurity. Where insecurity is lack of confidence in the world, we find that Christ has overcome the world. This world is a dangerous place, right? Survival of the fittest. Hear that? That's right. It's not fair. Bad things happen to even good people. And frustratingly, good things happen to bad people, right? The world is bigger than any one of us. We can't control it. And because of that, sometimes it seems uh, terrifying. And if it was just us versus the world, what hope would we have? That's why I want you, if you have your Bibles, why don't you join me in Luke chapter 1. That was the passage that Andrew did such a great job reading this morning. It's part of the Christmas story. The Gospel of Luke is one of the four Gospel stories of Jesus. Luke chapter 1 is kind of the story of how Jesus showed up. And, uh, and in there, if we start on uh, chapter 1, verse 26, you kind of see where, where uh, Andrew began to read. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, that was Mary's sister uh, who gave birth to John the Baptist, said, God sent an angel Gabriel to Nazareth in the town of Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now, I was so privileged this last year, we got to go to Nazareth. It was crazy. It was a little town like Estes on the side of a mountain. I never knew Jesus was a mountain baby. Right? Like if he dropped his ball, it would roll down to the next village. It was crazy. It was a little tiny town in the middle of nowhere. It's not where all the stuff was. It was backwoods away. And, and God sends an angel, not just to the backwoods away, but to a young woman backwoods away, who is part of a peasant family. 
And he says to her, and this is a virgin, she's not married or anything like that, can't have kids, that's how that works. And it says the virgin's name was Mary, and the angel said to her, greetings, you are highly favored, the Lord is with you. And I imagine she's like, really? That would be my thought. But we know that Mary, of course, was chosen because she wasn't like me. But it does says Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting that might be because it was so out of place. Don't miss that. When the angel showed up and said, the Lord is with you, she's like, that troubles me. <laughs> like, what kind of crazy talk are you talking about? Me, backwards out here, up on this lonely mountain, and I'm not even like the head of my household or anything like that. I'm not my dad. I mean, my mom, I have no authority. I'm not married yet, Right? And so Mary's troubled by this, and the angel says, the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. That's a big promise for a young girl in the middle of nowhere who's not even married. So Mary's got questions. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? It's like, you know, I'm not the creator, but I kind of know how he made things to work. You tell me I'm a kid, I'm not even married yet. And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be, to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, who is with child, uh, was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. You know, Mary looked at her circumstances. She looked at the world around her and she said, there's this promise that God said, He's, here's my plan for you, Mary. You're going to be the mother of the Messiah, the one that everyone's waiting for. God is actually going to come and put on flesh, is going to actually uh, going to be your child and Mary looked at her circumstances and nothing seemed to match. And for starters, biologically, she would say, I can't have a kid. I'm a virgin. Right? So there's one big problem of, uh, for my own human understanding. In the history of mankind, this has never happened. So I would say probably not very likely. The second thing we'll look at, you want me to have a child that's going to be a king? Have you looked where I live? Go to Jerusalem. There are some wealthy ladies that live there closer to the temple, that have noble blood, right? They can have a king as a child, but me? I mean, everything, if Mary looked rationally at her circumstance and God said, this is my plan for you, she would say, if she just said that God wasn't in that picture, she would say, it's hopeless. I can't make this happen. And she was absolutely right. She couldn't make it happen. But here's the most amazing thing, was when Mary was faced with this, and this is a pretty short conversation, Look how Mary responds to this. She says, I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. She came to a point where she said, you know, what you told me in my life is an impossibility. It cannot happen. But I'm going to trust you. I, I, I can't put my hope in me, and I certainly can't put my hope in my culture for this to happen, Right? <laughs> And nothing in, in my society will allow, even if, even if I did get pregnant, that my child would become uh, the, sit on David's throne. For starters, there's Romans out there, and they don't want David's throne. 
But second off, you got the Sadducees that are there, that are pretty, that they have their power from the Hasmonean, the, 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 the war that they had against the Greeks. We're, this is going to happen. But instead of looking at herself and culture, her hope wasn't in that and the world. She said, God, you can do what I don't, can't fathom. You can do what I think is impossible. You can figure out the things that are far beyond me, and I can trust you to do what you claim. That's pretty powerful. So Mary put her hope in Christ, hope in God, not in herself. Now, have you ever wished that, like Mary, God would just reveal to you his plan for you? That an angel would just show up, you know, you're sweeping out, you know, you're doing your work, and all of a sudden an angel shows up, boom! Hello, highly favored one. You're like, what? God's going to do this amazing thing through you. You ever wish that would happen? Or you're wondering, should I make this business decision? Or should I move here? Should I do that? God, what is your plan for me? You ever wish that an angel just show up and be like, this is God's plan for you? I'll tell you, if God showed up and gave his plan for you, it would be just like Mary. God's plan for you is to do far more in your life than you could ever do on your own. That's the evidence that he's in you. It would require faith. If God showed up and said, Aaron, this is what it said to you, but hopefully wouldn't say Aaron to you. But if he showed up, and he said, you know what, this is what I'm going to do in your life. This is my plan. You would look at that and you would look at your circumstances and you would say, that's impossible. You'd look at the world and say, I don't know if I can trust God to do that. But the thing is, it's going to require faith. You're going to have to trust that God is going to do what he claims to do. And I guess that's why the Advent gives us confidence. He says, like he said to Mary, no word of God will be unfulfilled. God's plans happen that we can trust him. See, God didn't just hold Mary. He holds our future as well. And the Advent shows us that Jesus didn't just come to save the rich and the righteous few that were around. He came to save all of us, anyone who come to him. John 16, 33, Jesus tells us, I've told you these things that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Oh, but to take heart, that's another way of saying, don't be discouraged. You say, in this life, you're going to face difficult things. This world is not going to be fair. Bad stuff is going to happen, right? You're going to work towards things, and it's not going to go your way sometimes. It's just not going to be fair. But Jesus says, we don't have to get freaked out by that. Take heart. Don't be discouraged by this, because I'm bigger than that. I am the mighty God who came and put on flesh. I was the son that was born. I have overcome this world. In fact, he tells us that there's, there's going to be a reason that, that he's overcoming this world. It's not just in the big things. He overcomes our life daily. In fact, look about Romans uh, uh, 8.28. Uh, talks about that a little bit. He, uh, where Jesus says, or I don't think I have a slide for that. that uh, where uh, Paul says, you know what? God is working together all things for our good. For those who love him and call according to his purpose. That everything that you go through, that's your life. That are the little things, that's the difficulties and the troubles and the trials when stuff doesn't go your way, when the world is unfair, when the culture is, is collapsing around you. God says, even that I am using for your good and for the good of my kingdom. He meets us even here on this little mountain town. See, hope doesn't stop life storms. Bad stuff happens. Hope carries us through those storms. It allows us to continue to cling to Christ the child who was born. So I would say this season, let this season be one of secure hope in Christ amidst your chaos. And so if you find that you are discouraged because you feel like this world has just failed you or society has failed you, see past the culture. Find your hope in Christ. 
The third reason that hope overcomes our discouragement is this, is that hope overcomes pessimism. There is no room in the Christian life to, to say that the future is not bright. See, see, the advent, the coming, right? It reminds us that Jesus came once so that he will then come again as a victor. He came this time to overcome sin and death, to break the bonds of those things that destroyed us, to overcome our failures, to overcome this world. But he's coming again the second time to, to reign as king of kings and lord of lords. And he's bringing heaven with him. This world is going to be torched, Right? We get a new one. Oh, and that's perfect. Fantastic. That God is at work today doing great things. See, Jesus didn't just come to save us from our sins. He came to save us for heaven. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul talks about this. He says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Say this, our, our light momentary troubles, we tell you, we, talking to the Corinthians, they were not going through a very easy time. The Corinthians at this particular time in history were being persecuted violently for their faith. Right? Just for believing in Jesus, the family members were casting them out. Their businesses were being burnt to the ground. Their customers were leaving them, right? They had their entire culture, society rejecting them wholeheartedly. The government itself started to have, say, you are not loyal to, you're not a patriot anymore. And so society saw them as onerous and bad. It was a high cost to be a Christian. It was not uncommon for Christians in this time to be beaten brutally just for being Christian, to be ridiculed publicly, people saying false and slanderous things about that weren't even true. And he says, Paul says, light and momentary troubles. And this is a man who had the right to say that because he was beaten to an inch of his life multiple times for his faith. Suffered all kinds of horrible things. And he says, you know what? This world can be hard. It's not like you don't have troubles. But I've seen the other side because God gave Paul the opportunity to see heaven. He took him there and showed it to him. And Paul said, let me tell you something. I've been there. When we go through the day, light and momentary. The injustice of this world, light and momentary. This world that we see that seems so real is going to pass away, but you're not. Christ is not. The kingdom that he's bringing is not. It's eternal. He says, this what you go through compared to what's coming up is going to seem tiny. Today it may seem like Long's Peak. But when you get to heaven, you're going to look down on it and be like, what was that? little inconvenience, but better than that. It's not as though God just brings us through those and it's like, well, yeah, it was kind of just bad. He says, those bad things are actually working in your favor. These light and momentary troubles, these hardships that we must endure, it says, what are they doing? Achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. You suffer this much, you get this much blessing that never ends. It's like going to the gym. You know, you go to the gym and you, it, it's not fun to lift weights. That's the point. It hurts. It's heavy. Right? They're light momentary struggles. But you don't stay at the gym forever. You put down the weights. But the glory that we have is like if you lifted weights once and you leave and you're buff and you're buff forever, would it be worth it? Yeah! Sign me up for that gym. Christ has told us this world is that gym. So when we struggle in this world with the problems of this world and the people of this world and the bad and sinful cultures of this world, recognize that it is the weight that is building you up. 
These are light and momentary things, but they are achieving something great in you. That is the hope of Christ. Better days are on their way, and they're coming swiftly. The Jews waited for a long time for Jesus to show up as Messiah. But then when it happened, they were like, wow, that happened. Now we're 2,000 years past it. This world passes like a vapor, a blink. It's temporary. Jesus is coming, and there's a day when he shows up. You're going to be like, wow, it didn't seem like, I can't believe it happened so fast. And I'll tell you what, when he, Jesus comes back, he promises, he showed us the end of the, the story. He shows us how it ends. It's good. Every wrong will be righted. Can you even fathom that? I don't even know how that's possible. But like Mary, I'm going to trust that God can do what I can't fathom. But every wrong, every injustice will result in something great. Every wound will be healed. Not just physical wounds, but the emotional ones. The ones that we carry with us. So that Christ wipes the tears away from our eyes. He doesn't just wipe our memory of the bad things. He wipes the tears away and he gives purpose to the pain. And he heals us. Every sacrifice will be rewarded. Even when this world says it doesn't matter. Then Jesus say, if you're going to pray, go to a closet where only your father says he'll reward you. Oftentimes we do the good things in this world. It doesn't seem like it even matters. Oh, it matters. Every sacrifice you've made for the kingdom, every act of love that you've shown because of your faith matters. It is like gold that will result in praise and glory and honor and riches when Christ returns. That's something to look forward to. If you are a pessimist, if you, if you struggle with pessimism, I want you to see what, what we have here, what Jesus says. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Another way of saying that, don't be discouraged. He says, you believe in God? Can God do all of these things? Yeah, he says, then believe also in me. I'm God. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? Jesus didn't just come to save the world in general. He came to save you and me. That's why we celebrate this. I hope that when Christ returns, he's not just going to come back to the, to the nice looking people. He's going to come save all of us who put our faith in him. But he goes on then. He says this. He says, and if I go prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that way you may be where I am. Jesus is returning. He came once. The season as we prepare our hearts to celebrate his first arrival, we also need to prepare our hearts for his second. To know that God keeps his word. And when he comes back the second time, it's going to be a lot more fun. He keeps his promises. So this year, if you write this, this season, if you find yourself struggling with discouragement, to be a pessimistic person, you have a dark outlook on the future, good things happen, you think only so something bad's going to happen afterwards, remind yourself, see past your pessimism and see Christ. See his purposes. See his promise. Prepare your heart this year. Now we would say this year, as we, uh, this season, this week, as we prepare our hearts uh, for, for the Advent, I want you to cling to that hope that Christ gives us. Advent this week, really focus on the hope of Christ. Right? If you do struggle with failure, find his grace. If you struggle with just uh, discouragement because of, of uh, bad things have happened to you, right? You lack confidence in the culture. Find your confidence in Christ. If you struggle because just you can't see better days are coming, trust in God. Find your confidence in Christ. Put your confidence there. This week, really focus on that. As you prepare yourself, I think you'll find that this season has a whole lot more joy to it than maybe you've ever experienced. It's a lot more than just fun songs and hot cocoa and presents. And our God is a real God, and he really showed up, and he really does save us from our real sins and our real selves on this real earth.
and he's really coming back. So how do you apply this hope? Well, if you take out your connection card, I have some, some next steps that I'm going to challenge you to take to be able to, to begin to prepare your hearts this first week of Advent. The first challenge I'm going to have for you is this. Why don't you read the Christmas story? In fact, every week, these next four weeks, I'm going to give you the chapters for the four Christmas stories from the four Gospels. We're going to start with the first Gospel in order, Matthew. So this week, why don't you read Matthew chapter 1 and 2. Read what happened when Jesus came. It's a great story. When God actually fulfilled the prophecy that we just memorized today from Isaiah 9-6, what was it like? I think the second thing you can do to prepare yourself for hope is this, is enjoy the hope of Emmanuel. God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. That God actually showed up. And that's why it says enjoy Emmanuel. To look at your situation and know that God didn't just show up in a manger so many years ago, but that when you placed your faith in Jesus as, as your Lord and Savior, he says that the Holy Spirit now is with you. God is with you. It means that every trial you face, you're not facing alone. Every single thing that you go through, light and momentary trials, are achieving for you great things, that God is working together everything together for your good and the, the glory of his kingdom. So enjoy that when you struggle, when you, when you face discouragement, when you're hard. Say, God, I know that you're in this, and I'm looking for you. Or how about this? Maybe you just need to cling to hope. Trust in God's love and faithfulness week. You find yourself a discouraged donkey just feeling like, oh, just overwhelmed, pessimistic. Cling to hope. Don't let the enemy steal that from you. Remind yourself the reality that God really did put on flesh. He really did go to the cross, and he did, he did raise again, and he really is coming back. And there really is a purpose for your life here too. He's with you and in you and at work. Cling to it. Remind yourself of truth. Or how about this? Maybe the last part you want to do is celebrate Christ this Christmas. The best way to beat discouragement is with a party, isn't it? That you're gone to a party and somebody's just like, so discouraging bad. And then you throw them a party and they're like, oh, there might be mopey for a little while, but then while they start to dance a little bit, you're like, okay, I'm not so sad anymore celebrate. God showed up. He beat death. We've got the greatest message ever. Celebrate it this year. And so I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to welcome you and invite you. Join us these next four weeks as we go through Advent and prepare our hearts to truly celebrate Christ. If you have a prayer request, I invite you also to write that on your connection card now. And here in a minute, we're going to take our offering. As we take our offering, please take these connection cards minus your memory verse card. Drop them in the offering basket along with your tithes and your gifts. Right? Make this your first step of preparation, of an expression of your hope in Christ uh, this week. Let me pray for you as you make your commitments and your offerings. And then Zach and the worship band will close us with some great, great worship. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you showed up and you overcame this world. You overcame sin. You overcame death. And you overcame it because you love us. And that you uh, showed up as a person a child, a son, one of us. But you're not just like one of us. Now you have the shoulders that are big enough to take upon the government, that you are a wise counselor, wonderful, in fact, that you call us to come to you as your children and you will always be our everlasting father. Father, that you are mighty and powerful enough to, to save us even from ourselves and from this world and for eternity. And that eternity you're saving for is an eternity of peace. Lord, we long for that as we wait for your second coming, but this season, these next four weeks, I pray that you would enable us 
Gift us with the ability to prepare our hearts to truly celebrate you. This week, I pray a blessing of hope over this congregation. Lord, amongst the discouragement of this world, let us see past ourselves or this culture or even uh, our pessimism. But Father, let us find our hope in you. Lord, in so doing with that, we want to live in that hope. We've made commitments today to begin to apply that hope into our lives. Help us to not just keep these things in a religious way, but these next steps. Help us to take them as next steps towards you, that we would experience the hope that we have in Christ as we cling to it. Father, we pray for the tithes and the offerings that we give to you today out of grateful hearts. You're the one that's given us everything. We give back to you because you're worthy, because you asked for it, but also, Father, because we want to worship you. So, Father, please accept these tithes, these gifts, these offerings as an expression of our worship. Lord, uh, would you please use them to build your kingdom for your glory? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.